My name is Pastor Tom. It is a privilege to be here and worship with you. As Megan invited you, we do want to encourage you to join us for Ash Wednesday, um, especially because it is the beginning of a season known in the church as Lent. It leads into, uh, for 40 days, our preparation toward Easter, and we will be sharing some of the disciplines that we will be partaking in as a church and also beginning uh, with our focus on what we're going to be reading through on Sundays and in small groups, and that is the entire story of Jesus as it is told in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read through the Gospel of Mark as a church throughout this season of Lent, so we want you to join us for that. Uh, But before we dive into God's Word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you and praise you for being in this place with us. Lord God, would you encourage us through the reading of your word, and would you encourage us through the presence of your Holy Spirit to be drawn closer to you as we dive into a difficult topic, because we believe that, God, you are in the midst of not only the joys, but as Lisa prayed, you are in the midst of the weight on our hearts as well. And so may we find your hope so that we might leave this place closer to you than when we came. It is in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. We're going to read the scripture here this morning as as part of the message, but today is is the final Sunday in our fear series. Is anybody disappointed? It's been kind of an encouraging series. A lot of you have shared these different fears, and it's been uh, encouraging to be able to go through them and see where God bears his hope and his grace in the midst of each one. And today is the second half of what we started to talk about last week. We talked about the fear of being vulnerable. So if you missed it, go on our website, sign up for our podcast, however you do that, and make sure to join us and listen to that. Uh, But I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Show of hands. Many of you have. Most of us have. Many of us have even said it. And many of us live by this phrase. Uh, I shared a statistic not even a year ago when we we had an entire message based on this particular philosophy, and I I learned that 81% of Christians believe that not only is that phrase true, but that it's found somewhere in the Bible, and it's not. There are several origins of this this common statement. You'll find it in an American Revolution era author's writing. It was a guy who didn't even believe in the church. Benjamin Franklin wrote it. You'll find it in the Greek, um, Aesop's fables. You'll even find it taught in the Islamic scriptures, the Quran. But there's nowhere you'll find it in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is nowhere to be found in the Bible. What you will find is the opposite philosophy, the opposite concept, which goes like this. God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. God, and I could go on and on and spend the entire morning going through the examples that we learned throughout the scriptures of of those who could not help themselves and God in the midst of their lives. Job is an example that many of us are very aware of. He lost everything for reasons that we will never fully understand. And it was in the depths of his despair that he cries out in Job chapter 30, terrors overwhelm me. 
My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. King David experienced similar seasons of despair, and he laments about them throughout the book of Psalms. Even, even Jesus came to experience what the prophet Isaiah foretold when he said that Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died. Jesus sweat drips of blood in lonely anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, moments before he would be arrested and sent to the cross. Jesus' final cry before his final breath was literally, and I quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But see, he did it with a purpose. And it's where we learn that even in our pain, we can see that God can use it for a purpose. God used the purpose and the pain of Jesus to draw those together toward him who cannot help themselves. It's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 6, that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, it's, it's totally normal human nature to try to be self-sufficient. This is, this is the lure that captured Adam and Eve in this thing we call original sin, right? It was the serpent saying, you don't need God. And it's been going on ever since. And it's also why the transforming power of God in a person's life, the bonding that happens between us and God, and we talked about that last week, happens and is experienced when we reverse the trend of sin by admitting that we cannot take on everything ourselves. Now, some of us learn that truth at a different point in our lives, maybe an earlier moment. I, maybe you're like me. I was baptized as an infant, but there was this moment when I was 17 years old when I chose to follow Jesus, when I chose to put him in a position of my life that was more important than my own, when I chose in my head to understand that I was going to need Jesus in my life, and maybe you've had that same conscious decision happen for you as well. But if you're anything like me, you're also eventually going to come to a place, and many of you have, where you learn this truth by living it, where you experience this truth because of something you cannot handle yourself. Like the Apostle Paul last week in our reading from 2 Corinthians, he had a thorn in his side. Remember that passage? And, and we don't know what that thorn was. I've cited that, that passage in, in numerous different sermons at funerals because we, we don't know what it was. Maybe it was a, a physical ailment. Maybe it was a physical disability. I, I cited it a, a year ago when I did a funeral for a man who had died of a heroin overdose. Maybe it was an addictive personality. Maybe it was a mental illness. We don't know what it was. But we know that Paul was just like you and me because three times he prayed to God to remove it. And the way God answered that prayer was he said, and we read it last week in chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
Now, before you think Paul is some crazy person we can't relate to, in Philippians, he says it would be better for me to go to heaven where all of these thorns are removed and gone and to be with Jesus forever. But on this side of heaven, that isn't always the case. And what he has learned and what he's trying to teach us as we read his words is that he's not designed by God to take everything on himself. And by doing that and admitting to that, he has been able to even rejoice in his weaknesses. And he doesn't do that because his weaknesses are easy. He does it because he has experienced the grace of God within them. And that's why he's able to say in Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything. But because we're all going to be anxious about many things, he says in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. When we have these moments of fear and anxiety and worry and depression and all of these things, we are to present them by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving to God. And here's how God answers. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we've come across this word anxiety throughout this season of of the series on fear and we've defined it as being fear on overdrive. It's, it's when fear takes over our life. And what we learned in the very first week of the fear series is that our fears, through the lens of the gospel, become God's opportunities to show us his love. Our fears become God's opportunities to show us his love. And, and we learn this by talking about the story of Jesus when he walked on water. Remember that story? It was in the Gospels. The disciples were on a boat, and there was this big storm, and it was terrifying, just the weather itself. And then Jesus came, because he wasn't with them, and he started to walk on the water, which would have been terrifying in the light of day, but at night, in the midst of a storm, it was really scary. They all thought he was a ghost. They were terrified. And at the same time, it gave an opportunity for Peter, one of the disciples, in the moments of his fear to step out of the boat because Jesus invited him to walk on water. His fear was God's opportunity to show Peter his love. And so today we're going to talk about another storm. We're going to talk about a storm that is far more common for people than I think many of us often realize. A storm that that I strongly believe God intimately cares about, and that is the storm of mental illness, of depression, the things we struggle with on the inside. And in other words, it's the fear of not being okay. And I just want to share one statistic with you. This is, this is according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and it says that nearly one in five adults in the United States, that's 43.8 million people, experience mental illness in any given year. That percentage even goes up for those of us who have teenagers, 13 to 18, and what they will experience at some point over the course of their lifetime. And just to give you a little bit of a perspective, if you look at our average attendance here at St. John's, if this statistic is true for the people that come to church here, what that tells us is that on an average Sunday morning, there are 50 people who come to church and are struggling with something that none of us can see with the naked eye. 50 people come and are struggling with something that we can't see with the naked eye. And I point that out because when somebody breaks their hip, right, and they have a cast or they're in a wheelchair, we know what's wrong. We can see their pain, right? 
We invite them, you know, we open the door, we, we have an elevator to help them get up to the main level. We do all of these things to make accommodations so that they can be part of the community in the midst of their struggle. But when somebody is going through a prolonged season of depression, for example, you know what? They still take the stairs. And they might not wear it on their sleeve. When, when They might even be a greeter, and they might shake your hand, and you say, how are you? And they say, I'm doing well, and they even have a smile on their face. But it doesn't mean that they're not in pain. And it doesn't mean that they don't need the support of God and of a church family. As a matter of fact, King David writes in Psalm 34, he says, the Lord is close to not the broken-legged, but the broken-hearted. He saves those who are crushed not in body, but in spirit. Not that he's not with us when we're crushed in body, but he is with those who are crushed in spirit. And, and friends, this is why mantras like God helps those who help themselves can be dangerous. I actually, I, I heard this mantra just this week, and I have to tell you that as a pastor, when I hear that, I get angry. Because we don't say that to people that are in a wheelchair, do we? Somebody wheels up to the stairs here at St. John's. Do you look at them and say, God helps those who help themselves? They're going to look at you and say, yeah, well, my surgeon said don't put weight on it for six weeks. <laughs> right? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that way, but we shouldn't say that to people who are hurting on the inside either because God is available to them. They're available to us when we cannot help ourselves. And to illustrate this truth, I I want to invite a member of our church, Trisha Bloom. She's going to share a little bit of her testimony with you this morning. Um, if you haven't met Trisha, she's been coming here for, I think we figured out the last service as long as, as long as my family's been around, so about eight years now. And um, she and I knew each other from the last church that I served. Um, Trisha's a, a, a mother of, of two beautiful young girls, one of them, actually both of them at different points I had in my, my children's and youth ministry, and one of them is here right now and is married, has a kid, has another kid on the way, and that makes me feel old. But then I think about Trisha being a grandma, and she's not old enough to be a grandma, so I don't know how that makes you feel. But Trisha is, is also, she's a, she's a licensed social worker. She's had various roles um, for 15 years, you shared with me at the last service, in um, her position at Children's Wisconsin in Milwaukee County. She works with foster care and adoption. And God works in mysterious ways because one of the greatest Attributes. One of the greatest strengths that Trisha brings to her work and her own experiences is the struggles that she's faced in life. And that's what she's come to share with you this morning. So would you give a very warm welcome to Trisha Bloom as she comes up. Imagine living... In total darkness, to me, that is how it felt living with depression. Not just a darkness, but a constant darkness with a thick, heavy fog. For me, depression has been an ongoing battle as long as I can remember. It wasn't just a sadness, but an immense loneliness, feeling that I wasn't important, and constant negative thoughts running through my head. It was the feeling that everyone was against me, and nothing that I did mattered. My day would start with a drive to Milwaukee where I worked as a social worker. During that drive, I cried. I had negative thoughts running through my head. One negative thing turned into another until I fully began to believe each negative thought I had. 
I didn't understand how God could allow me to feel this way. I began to doubt that God cared about me. As a recently divorced parent to two young girls, I struggled. I was hurting so deeply, but I tried to keep it together for my children. I didn't feel that I was good enough to be their mom. I yelled. I was angry, and they didn't need to see my pain. They saw me cry. They knew something was wrong. But when I would cry, I would just tell them, it's okay. Mom's just sad. And on the inside, I knew I, knew I wasn't okay. And I knew the incredible pain I felt. I felt like a failure as a parent. These two incredible girls brought joy to me, moments of happiness and laughter. I wanted the happiness, laughter, and joy to last. But for me, the sadness and hurt just took over. I wanted to be a better mom for them, but with the pain, I didn't know how. At that time, one of the few positive moments in my day was when I was at work. At work, I didn't have time to focus on myself. I was too busy focusing on the needs of others and ways to help them become better parents and stronger families. Ironic, that was when I was in need of help a tremendous amount of help, but I couldn't admit it. That I was helping parents become better parents, all the while I felt like a failure as a mother. But there came a time that I needed to look at myself and take care of my needs. That became the most difficult task in the entire world. It was so much easier to focus on others than it was to focus on helping myself. Treating my depression was not an easy road, it was with the unending support of my parents, my sisters, and my daughters. Addressing my mental health meant that I needed to be more vulnerable, which hurt more. I've spent countless hours in therapy to help me see that I am a person who is important and worthy of God's unconditional love. It was learning to understand that I had a chemical imbalance. And no matter what I did, it wasn't enough to change how I felt. I had to learn to accept that I needed medication the way a diabetic needs insulin. I needed medication to remain balanced. Years later, as a social worker, I was called into my supervisor's office to discuss a case that I was being assigned. This case was not just any case, but a life-changing case. A case that involved the death of a newborn and life-sustaining injuries to the surviving twin. I was required by law to see this mother in jail. How could I go and sit across from her, a mother who harmed her children? Why was I assigned to this case? I went to jail to meet this woman. As I waited, all these horrible thoughts began to creep in my head. Then she sat down across from me. As we began to talk, I looked her in the eyes. And through our conversation, I began to see a glimpse of myself. This woman was a married mother to three children, one who had been killed just months before. She was a nurse. She was asking for help, but did not receive it. You see, this woman suffered with severe depression. I could see the loneliness in her eyes, the anger, the sadness, and emptiness that I had been feeling all along. As I walked out of jail that day, I knew God cared enough about me 
to provide the support of my family, the family that I thought was so against me, were the same people that cared enough to make sure that I was treating my depression. The family holding me accountable for taking medication and going to therapy. It was in that moment of walking out of jail that I knew God had carried me through the loneliness, emptiness, anger, and sadness. As time progressed, I was no longer focused on the negative thoughts that had always been running through my head. I was not sad every moment of the day, and I was beginning to see a change in myself. Learning to live with depression has been learning to choose joy over the negative thoughts, to see the color in the world, and not to live in the darkness and fog. It has been believing the positive thoughts and realizing that I am worthy of being loved. It is ensuring that I am taking my medication on a daily basis and making adjustments with my doctor as needed. It is being open to returning to counseling when I'm feeling too overwhelmed or start to, starting to feel down. It is the constant support of my family that encourages me when I am struggling and supporting me. It's friends like my coworker Jen creating a joy meter to remind me to choose joy each day. A friend that checks in and encourages me when I am down and asking where I am on the joy meter For me, learning to live with depression has been being open about the rough roads and knowing that God has a plan for me. It is knowing that I am walking a fine line and I am choosing to define my depression and not let depression find me. Amen. Can we thank Trisha for sharing this morning? Thank you. Have a seat. No, I, I asked you if it would be okay if for the last several minutes we just kind of uh, dug in a little bit because we, we had a conversation on the phone when, when you called me about sharing and I felt like that conversation was just every bit as fulfilling as, as what you just shared with us now. Um, so, you know, first of all, I, I, for the record, sometimes the pastor calls and asks you to do something you're not real comfortable with doing. And I just want to say in front of everybody, I didn't ask you to do this. Um, we were going to do this series on, fa on fear. And um, we were promoting it, and Trisha called me, and it was at the same time that I was actually sitting in my office, literally, I told you this, and I was planning out the series and looking at the different fears that people were asking about. And this was one that I wasn't sure we were going to be ready for. I wasn't sure that we had what we needed to be able to, to present it well. And it was in the midst of that that Trisha called and said, I feel like God has placed into my heart to be able to, to, to share this, um, if you think this would be a blessing. And, um, and I said, yes, of course. But at the same time, as we talked about it, as the weeks drew on, you told me that, that it was really hard to write. And this has been really hard to prepare for and some sleepless nights. And more than once, I, I told Trisha, I said, you don't have to do this right now. And every time, she said, no, no, I really do have to do this. I want to share this. Um, why did, you, why did you want to share this, even in the midst of how hard it was? Um, <clears throat> mental health has such a stigma. Um, depression has a stigma. People don't talk about it. Um, and even though it's not talked about, people are dealing with it. And people don't need to be alone when they're suffering. People need to know that it's a rough road. It's okay to say I'm not okay. And you don't need to be on this path alone. And I think that's what I want people to know. Yeah, thank you. And and I think sometimes it's one thing, you know, for maybe the preacher to get up and say that, but to, 
to know that we're not alone because there's other people who are in the same boat that we're in. And you said that about church, that when you were going through um, this particularly difficult season of your depression, the church community, the church family, became an essential part of your healing. How, how specifically did the church come alongside you during that time? Church was a safe place for me. It was a place where it was okay to not be okay. It was a place where they reminded me that everyone is broken, and I was broken, I was really broken. I would cry through the service. And it was people like Pastor Reggie. Mm. And it was who would say to you, God is good all the time. So can I, can I interrupt you? Pastor Reggie, if most of you don't know who we're talking about, Marlene Hodak worked at Lutherdale Bible Camp, and so she knows who Pastor Reggie was. He is this boisterous, uncomfortably outgoing, Baptist-esque Lutheran preacher. And it wasn't just, you know, he would come up to you, he wouldn't just say, God is good. You know, he would look at you and go, God is good. And then he would wait for you to say. All the time. All the time. And then he would say, and all the time. And you say it, you know it. God is good. God is good. And he would make you do that. But for you, you know, he, he lived near you guys. He kind of had become a family friend. And, and how was that simple phrase hopeful to you as, as he said it over and over again? He would say it. He, he would ask me how I was doing. And not just a, hey, how are you? But just a really how are you, and wanting to know how I was really feeling. He knew how you were. He knew, he knew. And he would say, God is good, when I wouldn't, wasn't able to say it all the time. Hmm. And he would say, you know, you need to say it. And I would say it kind of with the rolling of the eyes all the time. Hmm. And it became to where I realized that God is good, and God is good all the time. And if it wasn't for my faith in my family, and counseling and medication, I wouldn't have gotten through that time. Yeah, but that reminder, that constant yes. reminder, and, and God didn't send lightning bolts when you rolled your eyes at it either, did he? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of times we don't feel like we can, we can do that, but it reminded me when you shared that of, of a quote by Martin Luther who, who said this. He said, we need to daily behold, and it's up on the screen, um, our life through the gospel mirror of Christ's grace, that, that every day, we need to hear our Heavenly Father saying to us, you're forgiven. Welcome home. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're not defined by your sin. You're a saint. You're victorious. And, and that was church for you. That was Pastor Reggie for you. Um, that's also faith in general. That's why it's important that apart from Sunday, we, we listen to things. And, and uh, I know Christian radio became really important for you to hear those things continually being washed over you, um, daily devotionals, prayer, um, small groups, being a part of co smaller community in the midst of our family of faith. And, and then other people, like your coworker Jen, which you mentioned a little bit. Jen is a follower of Christ and knew a little bit about what you were going through. You kind of let her into that as, as a coworker. And so she drew up this joyometer, and every time Trisha would walk into work, she would ask, okay, where are we at today? What are we going to do to lift it up? But, but you had dinner with her this week, and you told her that you were going to share your testimony at church. And what did she say to you? Jen said that she never realized the impact she had on me. She never realized how down I was when she asked where I was and how much that her little joyometer helped me to see that I needed to choose the joy. I needed to choose to be happy. 
and what a difference it made in my day. Yeah. But I, I, when you, you told me about Jen when we first talked, and then when we talked this week, I was shocked to know how little she knew about what you were going through. And, and, and isn't that the case for many of us, right? You know, if you're, if you're a greeter here or you're not, and somebody walks in and you shake their hand and you smile and you say, how are you? You have no idea what kind of impact that's having on a person. And for Trisha, for you, it was just the simple fact that you were willing to tell her that you were not okay. And, and that opened up the floodgates for God to put people in your life, whether they realized it or not, that God could use to encourage you. Now, you mentioned that you were newly divorced during the season of, of the, kind of the depths of your depression, and um, that wasn't the only thing that was going on. And I, and I contrast that with, like, my example before. When you break your hip, you might be laid up. <laughs> and a lot of times when we're dealing with, with issues of mental illness or things on the inside, everything else continues in life. You've got all of the, the plates still spinning. And so what for you was going on during that season? So not only was I newly divorced, not only was I depressed, but I was going to school full-time. I was working part-time. I was a mom to my girls, and none of that stopped. Then I graduated, and then I went on as a social worker. And as a social worker in Child Protective Services, you hear, you read, you see all these awful things that people are dealing with. And it was taking it all in um, taking all that hurt in and all those awful things in, um, that was really hard, too. It was hard, yeah. You, I think we can all relate to this. You, you, know, you were going through depression at the same time as you still had to be a mom. You still had young girls who had needs mm -hmm. that needed to be met by you. You were a daughter. You were a social worker. All of these other things were happening. And for, for many of you, you know, you're going through a similar thing, maybe. Um, maybe you have a parent who's fighting cancer, and you're the one who's taking them to their treatments. Maybe you have adult children that are up against the wall or making life-changing decisions, and so you're, you're trying to be there for somebody else while your life continues, and you're trying to keep your plates spinning. And, and what we learn in those seasons and what you learned is, is that we have limits. And, and even more than that, what ends up happening is we pay the price for those years that we push ourselves beyond our limits and try to just keep it all together. And, and that's where God teaches us what Paul says, right? When I am weak, then he is strong, that I need to reach out. And, and it was out of that season for you that you learn that you have God-given limits and that those are actually a blessing for you. And um, what are some of the ways that, that those continue to bless you today? Um, knowing my limits has really taught me um, to focus on the things that are important in life, to be present with my family, um, to enjoy the little moments in life. Um, having my, knowing my limits also helps me to know when I'm starting to feel down, when I'm struggling. Um, and it's a warning for me when, that something in my life needs to change. Um, sometimes it might just be saying no, which I'm not good at. As a lot of people Is are not good at. Is anybody here good at that? And... Um, and with my work, it's also understanding that um, all these terrible things that people are going through, that I can't fix everybody. People need to fix themselves, but I can walk alongside them while they work to be better. Um, it's maintaining those healthy boundaries for me. Mm -hmm. 
or God needs to come mm -hmm. alongside mm -hmm. them, right? Recognizing it's not all on your shoulders. Yeah. And you've been doing this for 15 years, you said. And um, I, I share it often. You know, my wife and I are licensed to the same agency. We've never worked with you. Um, but we've worked with a lot of social workers. And what often happens is one of two things. And I was talking to a nurse at the first service, same thing there. In the helping professions, either you become burned out and calloused um, or you leave. And there's a high rate of turnover. And I can say this just knowing you, Trisha. Trisha's not either one of those things. She continues to be empathetic and come alongside people in, in deep care and concern. And it's because you've learned that you have these limits. And, and you've learned the, the warning signs when those limits kind of come up against you. And, and I think of it like a, a check engine light on the dashboard of our car. And I shared this at the first service. Our two oldest boys, they went to, um, they went to a, a spelling bee. And um, one of them got second place. One of them got fifth place. And somebody at the last service said, how did they do? It's not part of the story. And what is part of the story is I was driving there. And it was about halfway there the check engine light came on on my car. And, and we were running on time, which for us was a little bit late because I wanted to get the kids there early. So we had no time to stop and deal with it. And so I thought, I'm just going to plow through. I'm going to get to, we're driving all the way to Kenosha. We're only halfway there and, and I'll deal with it later. But I remembered the last time my check engine light went on and I brought it to my mechanic and he said, it's a good thing you did it because your engine would have blown if you didn't do that. And so I realized that because that light came on, it didn't matter whether I had time or not. I needed to pull over, and I needed to make sure that everything was okay. And I did, and everything ended up being okay. Um, but I think it's a good parable for our life. And, and Tricia, what are maybe one or two warning lights that you've seen on the dashboard of your life that kind of give you an early indication that you need to take care of yourself in the midst of whatever you're facing? Um, for me, some of the things are when I become easily frustrated, when I get too overwhelmed. Um, sometimes it's when I get too focused in, on work and what's going on at work um, and bringing that home and not having that boundary. Um, and then it, it's the winter, it's the gloomy days. Um, that gloominess reminds me of where I've been, and that's not a place where I want to be. Yeah. And those are all very normal experiences that all of us face. And I think the difference in your... In, in your experiences that you've gained the wisdom to see that those things are indicators of something deeper. Um, is there anything else you want to share? Can we, can we thank Trisha one more time? Thank you. Thank you. In your bulletins, I, I want you to open up your bulletin and look inside because there's, there's a handout you'll see. It says support resource list. It looks like this, if you'll take that out with me. Um, we, we put this together, Trisha, thank you, because you helped with this. And I, I sent out an email to the pastors in our community and other people as well. Um, it's a resource for those of us here who are either experiencing Maybe full-blown engine failure, you, you fell over the threshold of the church this morning looking for hope, or, or maybe you're just starting to see some of those warning lights that you talked about. Um, whatever it is, whatever, whatever the case might be, if that's you, don't wait to get help. 
If you think you have a broken leg, you don't wait until every bone is shattered to go to the doctor. Don't wait to get help. And I read this other statistic when I was preparing for this morning, and, and it said this. It said the people who, who seek out help, and it doesn't matter what kind of help it is. It's, it, maybe it's going to counseling and, and making that appointment. And I share often that, that I myself have, have gone to professional counseling my entire adult life. Your pastor does this. And I think it's, it's so important and it's so critical. And, and I don't even know, I don't understand sometimes why more of us don't take that first step sooner. And, and so maybe that's for you. And there's resources on the list. Um, maybe it's, it's seeking a, a group, a support group, and there's a list of resources there as well. Um, if you're on the edge and you need to call 911 or you need to come to one of us and, and say, I need help right now, maybe that's you. And, and maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's none of those things, but you're seeing some of those early warning signs, and so it's, it's joining a small group so a, a Pastor Reggie-like person can get to know you for the times when you are struggling with whatever life brings, the statistic that I read that is that when you step out and ask for help or admit that you're struggling, 80 to 90% of people who take that first step find some form of relief. 80 to 90%. Now, it doesn't mean it all goes away, but it means that oftentimes the most difficult step, most difficult barrier that we face is taking that first step and saying, I need help. And so if that's you, I don't want you to leave without a resource. I want you to know that we're here for you. Trisha's here. I'm here. Um, we'll pray with you. We'll walk alongside you in determining what those next steps might bring. And, and I'd like to, to pray with you right now for that, if you, if you would. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for Trisha. And I thank you that in the midst of this series on fear that you have placed it on her heart to share her experiences with us because I know that they are not as unique as many of us think. But so many of us go through these same seasons on this side of heaven and, and we're kind of like Paul, right? <laughs> Where we say at the beginning of, of Philippians, he says, he says, it would be better for me to go and be with Jesus and for all of these thorns to be gone, but it's... It's for the benefit of others that I'm here with you, says Paul. God, we believe that our struggles have in the midst of them the potential for you to bring great benefit to us, whether it's bonding us to you, God, when we come before you and say that we have needs that only you can fill, or it's in the midst of sharing our stories with others like Trisha has, that we might be a beacon of hope and light in a world of darkness. And so, God, I pray for each person in this room. And I pray for whatever step we need to take in order to step into the light. That we wouldn't be people who live by the false mantra that says God only helps those who help themselves. Yes, there's a part that we play. But more often than not, that part is taking the first step and saying, I need you, God. Lord, I need you. And so as we enter into a time of worship and as we enter into a time of remembering your sacrifice, may those words be our prayer. As we open our eyes, I'm mindful of what today is in churches all around the world. It's a, it's a day known as Transfiguration Sunday. It was a day when, when Jesus took his closest disciples up to a mountain and they saw a glimpse of heaven and of God and they wanted to be there. And Jesus said they couldn't stay 
because he hadn't yet done what he had come to do. See, Jesus came to bond with us in our weaknesses. And that's why he gives us this meal to remember him by. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, he took the cup of blessing, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink, saying, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For as often as we eat this bread and as we drink from this cup, we remember the sacrifice Jesus made as he placed himself in the weakness of a man and died the death that we deserve on the cross so that three days later he could be victorious over death and therefore victorious over all things. Friends, I don't want to suggest to you that that means that total victory is going to happen in this moment. That's coming. Jesus is coming back. Can I get an amen for that? But his promise is that until that day comes, hear me, friends, until that day comes, he tells us that he will be with us until the very end of the age. And the way to welcome him in so that he might be near with you is very simple. It's looking up at God and saying, Lord, I need you. And so we open up our hands as a physical sign of that surrender. And, and as we pray together, we pray the way Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe this to be true?